At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 687th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the new farm in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm here with Bill McDormand tonight. Hello, Bill. Hello, hello, everyone. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you, thank you. Let's. Uh, I'm just going to read what Bell and Janice created, so that because they always do such a great job, and then we're going to be off to the races. It says squashes, summer and winter crossing. I guess in melons too. Help. How can we tell the difference between a summer and winter squash and why is it important? What are the challenges with cross-pollination and why do the three different species of squash cross or why don't they cross? And what are they? What are the pitfalls of planting and planning for harvest? So many questions and so many answers can be found in the seed chat with, I'm going to say Bill and Greg, because I don't know the answers to those. I'm just bringing it to you. So for those of you that are here live tonight, welcome, and uh, please put your questions in the Q&A section. Miss Janice is on vacation this week, so I'm doing full duty, and let's just jump in, Bill. Hello. Hello. So what, what kind of melon are you growing? <laughs> ah, the kind of, so I have a zucchini squash, and I think I have a sugar baby watermelon. Great. Those are, yeah. those are you should be fine. Widely distributed sugar baby is yeah. with all sorts of adaptation. And I have all kinds of squash and melon seeds that are different from that and heirloom, right. more heirloom and like that. It's just, I haven't been able to, you know, we've only literally as of today, we've been here 60 days. So, wow. Yeah. So I, yeah, I didn't really have an opportunity to get the gardens built and start from seed. So I just bought some plants. But I'll tell you what, something very interesting happened. The first few weekends that we were here in April and early May, I was at some of the plant sales here in Asheville, mm -hmm. and pff, I was blown away. I mean, there were literally dozens and dozens of different varieties of tomatoes and, you know, five or 10 or 15 different types of melons. You know, in Phoenix, when I was there, you'd get one or two or three of each kind, and that was it. So, right. That's a, a somewhat a function of the centralization of that whole nursery industry, right? Yeah. You've got huge, big houses that grow for all of the nurseries. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's nice to hear there, this return to diversity is happening there. And that's, yeah. the, that's a movement happening all over the world because people right. are going, yeah, I want my own stuff that works here. Yeah. yeah so that's good. So, well, you know, I was going to say, what is the difference between a summer and winter squash? Well, those are... Um, constructs that we have applied mm -hmm. and generally it, it pertains to um, squash that you pick and eat immediately in the summer when it's being grown, 
okay, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, our summer. And winter squashes are those that grow during the summer, but have a hard shell yeah. and store for eating in the winter. So it's not that they grow in the winter, it's just that you can eat them. And in fact, I just talked to somebody last week who just ate their last winter squash, you know, so they grew them last summer, right? And they've already planted this year's crop to start growing and they stored them all winter long, you know, in a basement or something cool, dark, dry place. And they just ate their last one. So that's the advantage of a winter squash. Wow. Now the, I, the problem with, with all constructs or definitions like that is that there are exceptions. And a few years ago, I saw introduction, Carol Depe, Dr. Carol Depe introduced mm-hmm. on her seed list, a squash, squash called Goldini. Oh. And it was a it was a cross between a winter squash that had the word gold in it and her zucchini. And this actually happened in her yard. I think the first cross happened without her, her knowledge of it. You know, she didn't I partake in it. I, I could be wrong with that. But anyway, she did some selection work and then and released it in her seed list. And Goldini is a summer slash winter squash. So you can, it's like a gold zucchini. In the summertime, you can pick them in, eat them like zucchinis. They're really good fresh squash. But if you don't, if you forget, if they're uh-huh. hidden, if you go on vacation, which happens to all of us, right? You go out right. and you find the zucchini that's as big as a longer than a baseball bat. It hardens its shell and stores for the winter. How's that? So, cool. they, you know, double duty. And so yeah. that can happen too. And that can happen sometimes with inadvertent crosses. And that's as people who listen to this podcast know, that's what um, we're big fans of. Make oh, yeah. the mess. Let things cross up and see what happens. <laughs> right? And you might get a Goldini. And so we'll talk about it. If you want to keep your squash variety, your squash variety, and you don't want it to cross with your neighbor's crosses. And this can be a problem because they're insect, largely insect pollinated. Uh-huh. And bees can fly a mile. So if you wanted to keep your squash from being cross-pollinated, you would have to control all of the same species crosses for a mile diameter around your property, at least a quarter of a mile, in order to make sure that you were, you were safe. Or I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm heard, I've heard if you, at the moment you get a squash blossom open up, if you cross, cross-pollinate it with exactly what you want it, you can tie it off, right? Right. And keep those insects out of there. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. But what, if you're around squash blossoms, you'll notice some things. The average for most varieties is around 10 to 1, male blossoms to female blossoms. Right. So squash are dioecious. In other words, they have both male blossoms that are individual and only have the... Uh, the We'll call it the flower, the pollen producing parts of the plant. And they've got the flowers that only have the pollen receiving part mm-hmm. of the plant. We're trying to transcend using male and female in these dis- descriptions as part of the modern changes here. And so you, what you want to do is, you, is find a pollen receiving flower. So mm-hmm. how do you find those? Well, they're easy to see and you can train yourself. When you first look, they all look the same. All squash blossoms look the same. They're the same color, same size. But what happens is that if you look down at the base of where the stem is, at the base of the flower, you'll see the start of a little squash, a little embryo. It's a little right. bump in that stem. 
And, and those are the those pollen are the, receivers. Those are the female, the pollen receivers. Got it. Yeah, right. <laughs> they were tests here. And so anyway, those are the ones that you would have to either. I've seen people use that blue tape. I've seen people use clothespins, whatever it takes to close it up so a bee can't fly in there and bring pollen from somewhere else. Now, the good news is most all pollination takes place in the morning. And so what you want to do is get a a flower that's just getting ready to open or is just open late in the day, just brand new. And those are the ones, and you do this at late in the day or early in the evening, come by and tape those up and let them sit overnight. And overnight, they'll mature enough so that they're ready to receive the pollen. And then you can bring pollen from one of the other flowers, the pollen producing flowers. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty easy. You can pick off, as I said, there's 10 to one, there's 10 of them around there. Just pick one from the plant, or if even if you're selfing from the same plant and you can peel the the blossom back, actually tear the petals off it. And you'll Mm -hmm. see this little, it almost looks like a paintbrush and it's filled with pollen. And you just take that and bring it into the flower, do the deed. And then tape that back up. You want to tape that pollen receiving flower back up. Otherwise, bees could still get in there. And what they tell me, the professionals tell me, is that um, it's over by noon. It's warm and moist in there. That pollen, everything gets done by noon. And so I leave my tape on there. And then usually within a day or two, the whole blossom just falls off anyway. Right. All right. So what happens I, on my zucchini? I saw this happen the other day. I get, you know, a zucchini starting to form and it gets to be, you know, an inch or an inch and a half long and it wizens up and drops off. Well, it, that, there could be several things. But one of the things that pertains to this discussion is that it did not get pollinated. Got it. In other words, as I said, every pollen receiving flower produces a little embryo and those can get quite big. But if you know, they say if one grain of pollen gets into that flower, and what that means is that whole, if it forms a squash, that whole squash will only form one seed, right? That's what's happening is the pollen is fertilizing the ovary, and then you get, Mm -hmm. you get a seed. Well, if only one seed, then that squash won't abort. It will go, it will mature and save, save its offspring, and you'll have a squash to eat. But if none of it gets in there, after a while, it just goes, mm, sorry, let's save this energy and put it in a different part of the plant. Interesting. All right, cool. I found Goldini on the uh, Open Source Seed Initiative site, and I put the link in the chat. Yeah, so that, let's see, there were some other questions here. Yeah, let's go into questions if you can. That, you know, that basically tells people what to do. If you mm-hmm. want to control the pollen and the outcome to breed true varieties or whatever, then that's what, then hand pollinating is what most squash seed savers do. And why? Because the blossoms are so damn big. It's easy to work with. It's the same process basically with peppers or tomatoes, but the flowers are a hundred times smaller. Right. And it gets really, so, so if you want to play with this stuff and learn squash is a great place to do that. And I just wanted to add uh, one other thing is that um, what we call commonly squash are actually four different species of plants. And the definition of a species is that it won't cross. Right. That's the definition of a species. So we have, um, they are all cucuberts, but the four species are Maxima, Mixta, Machata, 
and or angiosperm I, I think is what they no that's what they call the mixtus they changed one of the names and pepple those are the four species of plants and so find out you know what you're growing so like all the zucchinis but all the pumpkins are all pepples so they'll cross and that's where uh, we get these uh, rather common pumpkinis right they uh, actually cross people grow both of those in one garden and they'll end up with they go but I planted zucchini, I planted pumpkins. How come I got something in between? Well, that's why. But if you have a maxima, which, you know, or like a blue Hubbard squash uh-huh. and a zucchini growing in your in your yard, very little chance they'll cross. Now, we never say never. And there are wider wild crosses, but they're pretty rare. And if you get one, let me know. Right. Cool. I had, All I, right. I had a question in there. It'll come back to me. Jewel says... People pick the blossoms off to eat. Can you still pollinate and eat your blossoms too? <laughs> I guess you could eat the uh, petals of the blossom. Yeah. Anne wants to know, can you eat unpollinated veggies? You can absolutely eat unpollinated veggies. I mean, lettuce is not pollinated. With lettuce, you have to get it pollinated to get the seeds, but not the lettuce. So yes, you can absolutely eat unpollinated veggies. and it's still nourishing. You bet. Uh, let's see here. Martha says, I have deer in my garden. I have to fence off the raised beds two feet high. I think, Martha, if you only make it two feet high, they can jump right across. This is my front yard. For those of you on the live event, this is my front yard and we get deer in my front yard all the time. And I've been told that we have to, to fence it up to six feet high. Otherwise they can get in. And the fencing that's used to keep deer out is different than the fencing that keeps pollinators out. So deer fencing is not going to keep your bees from getting in. So you're all good there. Carrie says, Jewel being so greedy. I can't remember what Jewel said, but yay, Jewel wants to get it all done. Judas says, it's 105 degrees outside right now. How do I warm up? warm up my soil in early spring so I can get the warm weather plants growing and happy? Ah, great question, Judith. You actually aren't going to be warming up your soil. What I'm going to be doing here at the new farm in Asheville, North Carolina, is uh, I've got a nice little window that faces east and it's like one of those dome windows and it sticks out a little bit. So I am going to be starting my seeds inside at some point. I haven't quite figured out how to or when to plant things here yet. I haven't quite figured out the planting calendar. Only been here 60 days. So number one, you want to get yourself a planting calendar to make sure that you know when to plant. And usually the planting calendars tell you when to plant from seed and when to plant from transplants. So one of the things that I would do, Judith, is I'd figure out when to plant your seeds from transplants. And if it's 105 there right now, you're probably in the desert Southwest. And I'm very familiar with when to plant there. And so I would be starting tomatoes in the desert Southwest about November so that they can be transplanted in the garden in middle of February. And you want to start your melons and squashes and like that, you'd start those in mid-February in the low desert and then transplant them out at the end of March. So there we go. Let's see here. Carrie says, 
In San Diego area, I get powdery mildew very soon after the plant takes off winter and summer squash. I'm thinking a foliar spray will help. Yes, a foliar spray uh, will absolutely help that. In fact, I will put the link for our foliar suite of uh, products in the chat here in just a moment. Hey, Bill. Absolutely don't water overhead if you, oh, right. if you can help it. And that will help with a lot of mildew problems. You know, so drip it or you know, get a hose and water underneath, but don't get those leaves wet any more than you have to. Right. Also then what I've started doing is um, if you can plant enough plants and you could even do this, you can plant 50 of them. And when they're really tiny, uh -huh. if they start to get um, mildew, pull them and, and search through hundreds of different plants ah. over a short period of time and find the ones that are mildew resistant. And then use what we talked about before to save your own seeds. That's commonly used. And people are finding resistant varieties to all of these things. It's not that unusual. Nice. Well, you know, and that's what we're starting to deal with here. You know, there's so much more moisture. I just put the store.urbanfarm.org forward slash foliar link in the chat. In the chat. And that's what I'm starting to deal with here is a lot more dis-ease. Yeah. You know, there's I, I planted a half a dozen tomatoes in a garden bed that I made. The garden bed that I made the first weekend I was here, I planted a half a dozen tomatoes and they got three feet tall and then they just are staying perpetually wilted like it's, some you know i don't know if it's a tomato wilt or what but well you know that there are reemergences of early blight and late blight one of those is the one that got the irish potato famine it's, oh, right. it's now back and it can attack tomatoes and so yeah there's a lot of research going on there are disease resistant varieties you know so that's what i would look for and although some of them are hybrids that's okay to start that way. And mm -hmm. on previous shows, we've talked about how to dehybridize it so that right. you can have your own seeds. They're not patented. So there's nothing, no rules against you just saving your own seeds and stabilizing a line that's disease resistant that you really like for your own yard. So that's another strategy. Yeah. Carrie says, Carrie from San Diego says, who loves Bill? I do. I do. <laughs> Nathan says, in Florida, I am planting Seminole pumpkin trying Great. to find ones that are mildew resistant. It's a major issue in the swamp of Florida. Great. Well, see, again, if you may not have, you don't have to grow them all the way to maturity and take up a lot of space. I mean, if you've got a field, if you've got two acres, plant the whole thing, plant thousands of them. And the, that's like rolling the dice right. and trying to win, you know, to get all sevens or whatever. You know, the more you roll it, the more of a chance you have. But if you don't have all that space, you know, my uh, old friend, Tim Peters used to plant 50 tomato plants in one pot, one small pot and wow. train the vines out in each different direction till he could see the characteristics that he was looking for. And with uh, mildew, that's easy. You could probably start to see it when the plants are really small. So as I said, just pull all of those and plant more seeds and you might be able to cycle through. I don't know how much seed you have, but you might be able to cycle through and then invite friends and others from around the country. Use these networks, seed savers, whatever it is, to find many different varieties as you can of the kind of a squash you're looking for and get as much diversity back into your trials as you can. And that'll increase your, your chances. Yeah. Cool. 
So let's talk a little bit about melons, given that we kind of planted the seed for that at the beginning. Talk to me with what, about melons. Well, you know, I don't ha- personally have a lot of experience growing melons because I lived, you know, in a place that only had a uh, some years a 45 to 60 day growing period. And it's wow. really hard to find melons that work in that short period of time. But sugar baby comes pretty close. Yeah. Got sugar babies more often than not. And sugar babies are a good choice, even if you have a long season, because mm-hmm. you're not as exposed as long, right? If you have a melon that takes 120 days, there's 120 days out there that something can get it. You know, whether it's Havelina where we live or whatever it is. I mean, we're talking huge sugar, you know, that's a big bait for things or the mildews or whatever. And so right. I really like the sugar sugar babies and used to grow those. But just think for a minute how what a special thing melons are. They come from Asia. They basically all come from a wild plant. And we talked about this on, on shows past that right. have a bitter gene in them that produce this incredible oh, yeah. bitter substance as defense mechanism for insects and animals. Just through trial and error, we've bred that out. In a sense, we saved seeds from those varieties that weren't as bitter. And over a long period of time, and we're talking Silk Road days, you know, Marco Polo talks about eating the melons in some of the valleys that he walked into, and they'd been there for who knows how long. And one of my other favorite stories is that when this is um, what they say is that when the conquistadors, you know, got to the new world in the 1500s, starting into the late 1500s, they brought melon seeds from Asia. And that was just part of what got planted in their gardens and whatever. And immediately the um, native peoples picked up on the melons and however they got the seeds and started growing and saving them. And by the time a hundred years later, uh-huh. the first of those conquistadors got to the Pueblo uh, along the Rio Grande River in New Mexico. So they mm-hmm. came up out of Mexico into Arizona, Father Kino, and then they spread you know, I don't know the whole history and all those stories, but when they finally got up into that Pueblo country, they were growing melons. They go, what's this? And they go, well, we've been growing them for a hundred years. These are ours, right? And they thought that this was a native, you know, Southwestern New Mexican. Oh, wow. Well, it turns out that they're just offspring from those original melons that were brought a hundred years before. Mm. And I like that story because it shows you how fast really good melon seeds are spread around. Once somebody finds something they like, you're just light up. They're cool and wet and sweet, usually at the hottest time of the year. I mean, what? Yeah. there's nothing better. Cool. Let's see. Any other questions we got from people? Well, that, people have it figured out. Uh, apparently. <laughs> they All can right. Put, it, put in the chat then what your favorite varieties are. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, give us your favorite varieties. You know, and if you're looking for variety in melons, let me tell you about a character, Glenn Drowns. I met Glenn Drowns when I uh, was growing up in Idaho and first starting my first seed company way, way back in the day. And he grew up in a little town called Ledore, Idaho. And by the time I heard about him, he was famous in Seed Savers Exchange because he was offering more different kinds of melons than anybody else in Seed Savers. And so many so that eventually Kent Whaley, who was the director at Seed Savers at the time, hired him. He said, this is the guy. We, we're starting to do our own melon seed trials and saving seeds for the, for the organization itself. So they hired him and he moved out to Decorah, Iowa and mm-hmm. did the melons and organized the collection. 
and grew out and tested the seeds that were being sent there. And he holds the record, if I remember correctly. And I, I forgot to ask him about this because I did a podcast with him. 80 different species. Wow. In one summer, hand pollinated and kept them all straight. So <laughs> wow. just think, of, think about that. I mean, I've done one or two and it's just hard to remember all that's going on. You know, what you have to do is after you, after you pollinate one of those pollen receiving flowers, you have to put a ribbon, tie something on it. I swear melon vines and squash vines get up and move in the night. I don't know how they do it, but I'll come back <laughs> out and look and everything looks different the next day. There's new flowers, vines are growing. There's all sorts of stuff happening. So if you don't mark them, and I can't imagine marking 80 different things yeah. and trying to keep track of it. So, yeah. Well, let's see. Carrie says, mm -hmm. I started Eel River Melon. Didn't germinate in Christmas melon. Need to thin. Well, yay, Carrie. Love it. Hopefully you have more seed of the Eel River and that you can try again. Right. The major reason why melon seeds don't germinate oh. is that they dried out at one point, even for a few hours during the process. Oh, in other words, they start to swell up once they get the moisture in the soil. And from the time they start that process of swelling up until the little radical comes out and gets in the ground to get their own moisture. If mm -hmm. at any time that thing dries out, it's gone. And so lots of times when I'm planting something and all of them fail, I know it's my fault. Right. Because seeds don't all fail very often. They, they just they're so wily. You know, one of them will make it. Or at least you'll, so what I would do is go out and dig up all the seeds that didn't germinate and look at them. See if a fungus got them. Mm. See if they started to sprout and died or whatever. And that'll just be information for you to learn. Yeah. Oh, yes. Jewel says Janice and Ray suggested soaking the seeds in soul and essence to boost their germination. Absolutely. And that seems to work. But again, you can't let them dry out after you do that. Right. Terry says, can you please explain what foliar spraying is? Sure. Basically, foliar fertilizers, and we suggest four different kinds. That's what I posted in the chat box a minute ago for four different parts of the process. Basically, you use get one of those pump sprayers and you pump it up and foliar means you're spraying it right on the plant. So you're giving them nutrition directly on the, the limbs and the leaves and the fruit, I wouldn't foliar spray if you're going to harvest within a week, but you just spray right on it. And so that nutrition comes right in, comes right in. Uh, we did a foliar on the garden chat last month. We did foliar. So I'll, uh, as soon as Bill goes off on a tangent here in a minute, I'll grab that off of YouTube and I'll post it. So people could find that if they did. Is that listed with the podcast or was that a different It'll, it'll come out as a podcast next month, I think. Oh, okay. Like I said, I'll post it. And it's on my YouTube channel. So foliar right. feeding has a really uh, great history. And some of the first products, and I think a lot, I don't, you know, I haven't looked at the list that's in, in your stuff, Greg, but a lot of it had seaweed or kelp yes. in it. And that's because of all the micronutrients. Yes. Turns out kelp, because it's in the ocean, can get you know, every little different kind of, of mineral and nutrient in its plant substances. So when you dry that out, you wash it to get the salt off, dry it out and grind it up really fine and put it in a liquid like this. You can spray those minerals in a sense right onto your, your plant and have almost instant results. 
Yeah, instant results. And that's that's used. Yeah. yeah. No, it's really you don't have to wait for the whole process. And I've done that when I've needed it. You you know, after if you get to know your garden and you're out there, you go, you know, that guy doesn't look really that good. There's something going on here. And if you think it is nutrition, you know, and and it's already June or July, you know, fixing up your soil or feeding its roots isn't going to may not make it in time. So that's where right. foliar really helps. Yeah. C wants to know, does foliar spray you linked to also work to stop powdery mildew? So the foliar sprays aren't designed to stop. They're designed to increase the health of the plant such that they don't, they're not as susceptible to, you know, to getting powdery mildew in this case. So basically what the foliar, foliar products do is they, just like when you take vitamins, you're healthier. We're giving our plants vitamins so they're healthier. You know, there are organic program materials that have been approved as foliar sprays to stop mildews. Oh. Different ones, like copper sulfate. And the rationalization is that they're just minerals from the ground. They're organic. Yeah. Right. And so you can I, explore those. I have no I, per, I have no personal experience with those because I've always lived in such dry places. But check into that. And again, you could even your county extension agent might know, you know, or find somebody who's with a lot of experience just right in your area to find out what works where yeah. you are. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to tell them before we wrap up here, Bill, I want to tell them a story you and I and Bill were on vacation in I think 2013, maybe 2013 in Mexico. And you and I previous to that had been having a conversation about what would it take to super energize our local seed economy? Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's just necessary. (laughs) Right. It's exactly because in any given urban area, the seeds that we have to grow food are what's are on the racks in nurseries and big box stores. Right. And, you know, in the case of a cultural challenge, those would disappear like that. Well, just about as fast as the generators. Yeah. You know, we've seen this happen already, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Bill and Bell and I created a, an event. We call it the Great American Seed Up. And I know some of you are familiar with it. But basically what we did is we bought a thousand pounds. I think the first year we bought a thousand pounds of like 70 different varieties of open pollinated seeds. And we put them in buckets in a room and put scoops with the buckets so that people could come and scoop their own seeds and they would get a super amount of seeds for a super low price. Because a lot of them, we've talked about this on the show before, a lot of the cost of seeds is in the packaging and marketing. Almost all the cost, actually, compared to what, and we know this story from almost all farm products, right? Farmers don't get anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the industrial system. So we went directly to them. We went to the guys that actually contract with them and help clean and bag their seeds and brought in the big bags. We're even Mm -hmm. bringing in bigger bags now. Right, (laughs) we are. So we actually have announced uh, maybe we, maybe we're announcing it right now that we are doing the I think the eighth annual Great American Seed Up in Phoenix, Arizona, 
on the first Saturday and Friday and Saturday of November, which I think is the fourth and fifth. So for those people in the, within driving distance of Phoenix, we have our Great American Seed Up event there. And you can find out about it at greatamericanseedup.org. And uh, we'll have tickets for sale for that really soon. But then what happened was COVID happened a couple of years ago. And Belle in her infamous wisdom says, well, we need to put together a bundle. And so between her and Kari and Janice, we've put together what we call our seed up in a box so that you can do your own seed up. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that before we wrap, Bill? Well, the idea was that we, you know, what made the Great American Seed Up work was that we're not packaging. Right. So we didn't want to, you know, and somebody said, we got to get the seeds out. And we have, you know, we've got hundreds of people now every year coming. You know what, 700 people attended, I think the last. Something like that. Yeah. Big, yeah. So, but we can't do buckets. That's too much. So we hit a compromise. So what we decided to do is come up with bundles of seats that someone else could divide up and ha- do their own mini seat up in a sense. So there's, yeah. so we're still working on a, a bulk level. And so we get together bulk amounts of the seats. And we send you with the, the little envelopes to put them in and little cards with all the instructions so people can make their own seed packets up wherever they are. And so it's been, a, it's got, gotten us through. It doesn't have nearly the emotional impact that we were getting from the live one. You know, live right. events are really great, but we're getting seats out there and that'll still be available. So if you can't make it to Phoenix, you, you know, now we're going to keep that going and you still have that opportunity. And we're changing that as we go. We're learning. And so if you've got feedback for us, that's, that would be good too. But say you've got 10 friends. We, we did it into 10 packet bundles. So, and you can buy more than one of those if you have more. But if you have at least 10 friends or people that want extra seed or whatever, you could get these for, you know, really cheap. We're just dividing them once. And you're getting them directly from us. And so it's not a bad way to go. It's, and what were the 70 varieties that we picked came out of my 40 years of experience in the heirloom or open pollinated or non-hybrid seed industry through the years, through by hook and crook and sometimes chance. And sometimes after a lot of research, I ran into the characters that are at the bottom of the whole food chain as far as producing these open pollinated seeds. These are the same ones that you, in in many cases, the same old land race varieties that you would see now in your big boxes or see all all over the country, like the market more cucumbers and the Waltham butternut squashes and the black seeded Simpson lettuce. And the reason we chose those varieties is that they're, they're old land race varieties that have been around for decades, if not hundreds of years in the case of black seeded Simpson lettuce. And why has it been around? Because it's so good and it adapts wherever people have taken it. And so they're highly adaptable so that we don't want to sell your seeds to you every year. That wasn't the idea. The idea was that we would get you started with good enough open pollinated seeds and teach you how to save them. And we do that in courses in the Great American Seed Up. And then you can learn to adapt your own, say, Fiend's version of Black Seeded Simpson Lettuce or or Long Island version of it, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So there you go, and uh, the link for that is greatamericanseedup.org. And uh, one more thing before we sign off, Bill, I just want to do a shout out. We we put together great content at Urban Farm U every month, 
And Janice is uh, in great part responsible for making these things happen, you know, behind the scenes. And I would just like to do a shout out for, you know, to support us. We do a lot of great work here, do a lot of free content. And uh, if you wouldn't mind going to urbanfarm.org forward slash support us and clicking through and, you know, leaving, leaving us a little love behind, we'd appreciate it. You know, so much of giving now is going to uh, professional corporate-like nonprofits that are very large that act more, actually more like corporations. It's just my own feeling. Yeah. And so much of what we give to them, I mean, they've had to inherit the work that, you know, many beautiful people work really hard on a lot of things. However, a lot of that just goes to keep the organizations going now. Right. You know? And so personally, I'm looking for ways to be really, really effective with what I donate. And what you're doing, Greg, in the urban farm is like, it's small, it's flexible. It helps with whatever needs to be done at the time. And, and look at what you've done. How many downloads now on your podcast? Oh, somewhere around three and a half million. And we have uh, 700, I think 710 episodes out. This will be an episode next month. So, so that's the quantity. The quality is people like John Jevons, you know, who are heroes to yeah. millions of farmers and gardeners around the planet for the last 40 years. And you just sat and chatted with him. I heard questions and heard him light up like I've never heard before. And, yeah. and so, and that's, he's just one of the examples of the quality in these things. So that's, you know, let's get behind that. And the great American seed up, there's nothing like it. I mean, so if right. you, you multiply 700 people by, and this is our eighth thing, thousands of people in the region that we started in, yep. not only have the seeds, but the knowledge to save their own seeds. That's the kind of city I want to live in. Not one where everybody gets a gun, freaks out and goes down to their big box because they're afraid. And that's the other scenario, unfortunately, that we see yeah. unfolding. So. Well, let's just, you know, super energize our local seed and food system. So, and, and if nothing ever happens to it, we're still doing the most fun work we could ever do. Right. That's, that's part of, yeah. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate you uh, showing up yet again. Yeah, no um, problem. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. I'll be back at my, uh, regular digs next time in my own garden right, but cool. uh thanks thanks for putting up with my disappearances and uh oh, that's okay. you, you look good keep doing it buddy thanks it was uh actually easy for me to step in with all i've learned from you over the years so wow. all right. thank you thank you all right all bye right. everybody appreciate Take it care all right. thanks we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast remember to listen for tips advice and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming you can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. 
If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.